he called me on the phone and said, you're not going to believe this, but they wrote about us in the commercial appeal in the playbook. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? And as it turned out, Donald Abadi, who was the art critic at the time, just happened to be in the museum at the moment that we were wandering through the rooms laughing at things. And he wrote an essay about how stupid our generation was called Something Alien in the Park. Welcome to the Showcast, a show about music, culture, and Memphis. As we live into our mission of building community through music, education, and diversity, we look forward to interviewing artists, musicians, movers, and shakers about how they're writing their own stories and building their own communities. For almost 90 years, the show has stood the test of time as a beacon of hope in the heart of Memphis. This podcast is brought to you by Orion Federal Credit Union, where a big part of us is being a big part of the community. Visit orionfcu.com to see how Orion is redefining banking. Hi, and thanks for joining us on Shellcast today. I can normally come up with a two or three word phrase to describe our guest for the day, but all I can say is you're going to hear some great stories today. We are pleased and proud to welcome Mike McCarthy to the show. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, and you can put in the candle after uh, in the post. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Starting at the very beginning, uh, tell me where you grew up and how you found yourself in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, how much time you got? As much time as you want to take. I grew up on a gravel road outside of uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, about 20 miles outside of Tupelo between uh, New Albany, Baldwin, Boonville, and um, kind of got the pop culture that was, you know, washed down to me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was sort of, uh, that drifted down to me from uh, weekend trips to Tupelo and comic book spinner racks and uh, magazines and heroic fantasy paperbacks and mm-hmm. rock and roll was not an epiphany that I was really allowed to have until I was much older and drifted into the whole southern rock milieu, you know, that's the only stuff I could really find. I was into the Beatles and the Stones because you could find that at Walmart. But um, the punk rock influence came later when I went to Boonville Northeast Junior College and met this Japanese kid named George. And then uh, George and I decided that, well, he asked me to be in his band called the Rock Roaches, which was a kind of a post-punk power pop mm-hmm. band that sounded sort of like the cross between, I don't know, Conway Twitty and the Buzzcocks, something like that. I'd listen. <laughs> and so uh, we, George came to me with a newspaper one day, commercial appeal, maybe a playbook supplement at the time because we always read the playbook supplement about what was going on in Memphis, although we were somewhat intimidated to actually come here because we had no friends or relatives or anything here, and we were 100 miles away. And he said, look, there's this place called the Antenna Club, and they have punk rock there. So one night we went out to Baldwin because I didn't have a phone at my house, and George, I don't think, was allowed to make a long-distance call. And we went to this payphone in Baldwin, Mississippi, where I was born, it's payphone by a laundromat that my mother used to go to, and it's where my family always made long-distance calls. And so we pumped a couple of quarters into the payphone and called the Antenna Club, and of course, Steve, I guess not Mark, but Steve McGee's voice was on the recorder, and he said, welcome to the world-famous Antenna Club. The Philistines are playing this weekend. So we made our first trek up here in 83 wow. to see this band from Albuquerque, I think, which really weren't punk, but... Um, 
experienced the antenna and then decided to move here in 84 so I could go to art school here in the park. And uh, George was going to take a job and we were going to well, we thought we were going to play, be in the Rock Roaches right off the bat. It, we turned out playing in a hardcore band called Distemper, and we played the antenna. And the antenna was just as much of an education as the art school. Expound upon that a bit, if you would, please. Well, when we, I, I touched, maybe I touched upon this in Chris McCoy and uh, Laura Jean Hawking's uh, antenna dock, but we parked in River City Donuts parking lot in George's car, and we watched these weird-looking people go into the club, who, that we had only like fantasized about or seen photographs of while we were in junior college at, in at Northeast, or we were mm -hmm. still in junior college. And uh, then this lanky guy in a motorcycle jacket and a mohawk walked into the club, and I saw him from a distance, and I'm like, that's the guy that's going to beat the hell out of me tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just projecting, you know. And so we go into the club, and we're hit with all this black light, you know, that you, know, you could see cat urine, you know, in it. And... Everything was glowing, and uh, we weren't even—we were like straight edge at the time, and uh, well, you know, George still is. But uh, we found a table, we sat down, and we weren't even aware. We were so blown away by the loudness and the, you know, the beer, the Schaefer's beer smell and uh, everything, that we were watching the Sex Pistols on the TV, five televisions, but we didn't even realize it. And that was the first time I'd ever seen the Sex Pistols, I guess, move like mm -hmm. a, a video of them. Right. Although I might have seen them on the John Chancellor, David Brinkley News Hour when they covered punk, you know, in 77, which pogo story, pogo dancing story that Nightly News did. But the guy that I thought was going to beat the hell out of me turned out to be our waiter and asked me what I wanted to drink. <laughs> and uh, I think it was, I always thought it was Steve McGee. It's a more desirable outcome. <laughs> right. Here's your drink. Now I'm going to beat the hell out of you. <laughs> Uh, but that was in uh, 83, and then we came back, back up in 84. I don't know if you just want me to ramble here. Quite all right. Came back up here in 84 to find an apartment, which turned out to be at 189 North Auburndale, which became Distemper House, when all these underage Germantown kids started hanging out there and dubbed it Distemper House. It was a place where they could underage drink and do God knows what. And George and I were the... We were the renters of the place, <clears throat> and that's where Distemper kind of came together. But we came to the park. We came to Overton Park. We had never been in a museum before. We had never had a cosmopolitan experience before. And um, we went into Brooks Museum that, that weekend, and this must have been the spring of 84, I'm thinking, or maybe the fall of 83, we weren't going to be here until the fall of, of uh, 84 when my school year started at the Art Academy. Anyway, we were checking out Memphis. It might have been August. It might have been right before we came. It was. It was. Uh, it was right before we came up here. So we go into Brooks Museum, and being the uncultured barbarians at the gate that we are, we find everything in there funny, sort of in a David Letterman-esque kind of stupid comedy, everything has to be sarcasm right. kind of way that um, really was the tone of... Uh, I think television humor really affected our generation of, of young men growing and women growing up in the early 80s. But we just were laughing at everything in the museum because we thought everything in, that we saw was ridiculous or worthy of parody or satire. And then we looked around for an, a, a, an apartment and uh, I don't think we went to a show. We, we went back home. So then 
George moved up here immediately. We found the apartment and then he called me on the phone and said, you're not going to believe this, but they wrote about us in the commercial appeal in the playbook. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? And as it turned out, Donald Abadie, who was the art critic at the time, just happened to be in the museum at the moment that we were wandering through the rooms laughing at things. And he wrote an essay about how stupid our generation was called Something Alien in the Park. And my, since George was Japanese, the editorial cartoon that illustrated the, the piece was a Japanese kid with his hands against the wall looking at a painting and thinking about television. And that was our indoctrination or our passageway into Memphis. We were written about in the paper before we ever moved here. Wow. In a sort of negative, watch out for these people kind uh -huh. of way. And then we were living here a week or two later. That's, that's a lot to live up to. Wow. <laughs> but then I, I made a short film about this story with fantasy infused into it called, well, it was originally called Something Alien in the Park from the title of the article, but then I changed it to Goddamn Godard for whatever reasons. Uh, you can look up Goddamn Godard and you may find it on YouTube. But something alien in the park really started to settle in with me in the later decades of living here and creating art here because Watson Davis as Savad was something alien in the park in 1962 when he shot his hearse driven horse-driven hearse uh, opener, 16-millimeter opener to his, you know, fantastic feature show. Mm -hmm. And then 10 or so years later, when Bowie arrives in the park as a guest of Dolph Smith, he's something alien in the park. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, it was a huge compliment. We were just the next generation of the 80s of something alien in the park. I think that's awesome. Well, you have to find the way to make it awesome. Otherwise, you'll go, why did they put me down in the newspaper article? <laughs> Well, Memphis College of the Arts has been very, very important uh, to Memphis, developing the art scene, developing a lot of things. Regrettably, they don't exist anymore, but it's been a large part of your life. You've got some projects coming up yeah. that's going to involve both MCA and, uh, and the Shell. Talk to me about it. Uh, okay, so on February 25th, we are going to have an event at Studio on the Square, which is called Beatnik Manor, and it's sort of an experimental doc you really won't have to take drugs before you see the movie because the movie itself is a fairly hallucinogenic experience, mm -hmm. kind of like being in Overton Park in 1972, probably would have been. But um, there's a lot of tangents, aspects of this, a lot of spokes of the wheel to cover. On February 25, 1973, Bowie came to Memphis to perform Aladdin Sane, mm -hmm. uh, which was the Ziggy and America tour. So this was the second leg of Ziggy Stardust, or the secondary concept of Ziggy Stardust, where now Bowie was heavily affected by the Warhol crowd. He shaved his eyebrows. He was part of that intelligentsia uh, that Main Man, Re Main Man Productions had paid for, which mm -hmm. actually hired Warhol's cast that were in pork to help Bowie promote Aladdin Sane, which is arguably, I think, his greatest record. September 72 was... Bowie had been here and uh, performed at Ellis uh, on the wave of the first wave of Ziggy Stardust. This was the second Ziggy Stardust show in America. The first one was in Cleveland. And so then somehow he goes from Ohio to Memphis. I don't know how that happened, but he performs here at Ellis and does two shows. When he comes back in February 73, he does two shows. All rock stars in, back there in the day did two shows. The mm -hmm. Beatles even did two shows, right? Mm -hmm. So the next night, 
on February 26, 1973, uh, Bowie takes an invite from Dolph Smith and FM 100 and this group called the Organizers who had worked through FM 100 to put on the Bowie events in 72 September and 73 Feb. So Bowie and the Spiders show up at the Memphis Academy of Art to receive a gift from painter Dolph Smith, which is a watercolor painting. And there's only four photographs. I say only, at least there are photographs. Right. I've only found two photographs of Bowie performing that night as Aladdin Sane at Ellis. So there's more photographs of him at the art school that night than there are of him actually performing uh, that I found. I'm sure there's got to be something out there. But for some mysterious reason, you couldn't take your camera into Ellis, uh, which actually kills the historical effect of everything that happened there. Regardless, um, Bowie shows up at the art school. Dolph has four, four photographs made by Cherry Vanella, who was part of the Warhol wow. camp, who was in port, mm -hmm. and uh, had been in some Warhol movies. And Cherry Vanella really is the point person with Dolph and FM 100 and the organizers to make sure Bowie gets there, has a good time. Bowie walked around the art school for an hour, as did Mick Ronson, my favorite guitar player of all time, and Trevor Boulder and Woody Woodmancy. And then they leave and they go on to the next city. Ten years later, when I'm in school there, 11 years later, whatever it was, uh, at this point I was a 10-year-old kid in, on a gravel road in Mississippi. I didn't know the first thing about David Bowie. But when I went to art school there, there was some, somebody would mention that Ziggy Stardust had visited the school. I, I'm not even sure that I honestly heard anyone talk about it or show me a photograph until after I'd already graduated the school in 86, oh. which I think is a real shame because when you're living in the heartland of rock and roll and the home of it all happening and where it all started and the importance of the shell with Elvis and Johnny Cash and all the rock and roll acts that these photographs attest to, the, the idea that Bowie didn't play the shell, but he visited the art school, uh, you know, on his next day off. He could have just went anywhere else. He could have exactly. gotten in his train, on his train or whatever he was taking and leave, but he didn't. God knows what else he did in Memphis that day. I mean, I'm sure he probably slept most of the day and was up all night. So on my Gorilla Monster Films website, I have a page called Bowie Memphis, and it collects all the ephemera, uh, ticket stubs, uh, and essays by people who saw Bowie in Memphis, Bowie Memphis. If you Google Bowie Memphis, you, you, hopefully you would find the, the pages on my site. And uh, in 2008, I was invited by the art school to teach a film class called, well, I called it the film class that fell to earth which was make your life into a rock and roll movie. And I had eight people, eight students, just enough for the class to take. And I made a short film called um, The Spake Dolph Smith. And I'll be showing it on Feb 25th, uh, nice. coming up, Saturday, February 25th. So back to now, 50 years later, my sculpture teacher, John McIntyre, who's got to be close to uh, 100, 200 years old, but he's still around, he's still kicking. Wow. And for the last decade or so, McIntyre, I guess he knew that I didn't, well, at that point in time, I wasn't a sculptor, I was a filmmaker, from cartoonist to filmmaker, but he would leave Super 8 films and 16 millimeter films on my porch for no rhyme or reason, things that he had bought at a yard sale, had no room for in his house, or maybe he'd find things in his house that he thought I could use. So at some point, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, he leaves a box of films on my porch, and I think he and I had a discussion about it at the time, and he said these are a batch of films from the Memphis Academy of Art, 
which of course changed his name to the Memphis College of Art. But the, he had gone to Ted Rust, or Ted Rust had come to him and said, hey, I've got $500. Uh, we'd like you to do a 3D class. You can do anything you want. And this was in the halcyon hippie days of the art school really being a place that was not only you know, immersed in the heart of the American century, but again, as I said, in a rock and roll city where a cosmopolitan city where rock and roll people came here, visited the art school, it was a great place to go to school. <laughs> if you could go to your school that night and talk to David Bowie, I mean, what kind of art school is that? It's pretty so phenomenal he, is what that So is. he gives me these films uh, for which I had no money to develop, well, they were developed, I'm sorry, to transfer, to digitize, to color correct, to make into a film. But I have always, I've, I, I bide my time because eventually you meet the right patron, you meet the right person uh, who seems to be heaven sent and they're like, oh, I don't mind spending this amount of money on this, let's see what you can do. And then on top of that, they don't tell you how to do it, when to do it. So this person was, came in the form of Dennis Black, a child nephrologist, a doctor here in town who um, is half of Black and Wyatt Records. He's Dennis Black, the other half is Robert Jethro Wyatt and they put out local rock and roll records. So Dennis gave me the money, I digitized the footage, uh, gave it to uh, Justin Thompson, who's a saxophone player in Impala, and a lot of other things. Worked at Crosstown Arts, he's a videographer, makes movies, plays, plays music, been in a lot of bands. And Justin has edited this movie that called Beatnik Manor because once uh, I was able to look at the film, it was, as John McIntyre said, it was from 1972-73. At some point, some student wrote 1972 on the chalkboard. And what, what a thrill, you know, to see the, le the numbers 1972 in chalk, you know, on the art school chalkboard. You know, it's like, okay, time and place, this is it. So to go back to Bowie, Bowie visits Memphis and performs Ziggy, second Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars show in America, second one in America, in Memphis at Ellis, in September 26th, I think, of 72, just as art school is starting, just as school is starting throughout America. Mm -hmm. So on the Bowie flyer for that, for that ad, uh, the, the advert, it said, school's out Monday, because I guess it was a Labor Day weekend. Okay. So it, it was cued in to the fact that kids, you know, wouldn't have to go to school the next day to go see Ziggy Stardust. So Bowie is here during that period, that night, that fall, that school thing, right? Art school thing. But when he comes back in February, now he's in the second semester cycle of the school thing in America <laughs> as Aladdin Sane. And that blows my mind because Bowie had it figured out, right? Right. So... Um, Bowie's here in September 72, he's here in February 73. Beatnik Manor, which is the documentary I'm going to show on February 25th, that's where the footage, that, it's not like you're going to see Bowie in the footage, let me make that clear. Okay. In fact, let me go further to say that this is, in some cases, poorly shot, <laughs> um, sometimes out of focus, but when it all clicks and it all happens, uh -huh. it's the most amazing unself-conscious time capsule of a bunch of kids being handed Super 8 cameras by John McIntyre mm -hmm. because Ted Russ said, the head of the school, the name of the campus, 
here's $500, John. Do whatever you want. John goes to a store, Woolco, no, Zayers. Zayers, no Zayers. doubt. He goes to Zayers, which is where all the Super 8 film would get processed back in the day. And he goes, I need, I need as many Super 8 cameras as this money will buy. So at the time, that was probably, I don't know, five, six cameras. Super 8 wasn't inexpensive back then. In fact, I paid $300 for mine in 1978, $300, and it had stop motion on it, fancy stuff. So maybe these were very rudimentary cameras, and they had no sound. Whoa. So then McIntyre hands them out to students, or maybe students take turns with them. Maybe they were responsible for buying the film. Uh, that's something I never asked McIntyre. And so then McIntyre, maybe they watch the films once in the classroom scenario. They get graded. I don't know. Then McIntyre winds up with all the films, ownership of the films. Then he leaves them on my porch 45 years later. And now 50 years later, I've got them transferred, processed, color corrected. And I recorded McIntyre's narration over the body of the films, which lasts about 49 minutes. Want to learn more about how you can support the Overton Park Shell and its mission of building community through music, education, and diversity? Head to OvertonParkShell.org. You can read up on our history, check out our schedule of events, visit our shell shop to grab all the swag, and find out ways that you can participate in our mission, whether that's through donations, volunteering, sponsoring a concert, or becoming a member of the Shell Circle. Once again, that's OvertonParkShell.org. So yeah. all the film footage in there is, is from what he left on your porch? 99%, gotcha. uh, including Board of Education films, which you know you sat there in class when you were growing up, listening to that 16 millimeter projector put you to sleep uh -huh. in sixth grade or whatever. Right. So some of the students co-opted Board of Education footage, which you could buy at the Farmville-Macon Board of Education headquarters all the way up through the early 2000s because they would just park it there and sell it to anybody. Right. Because I bought 2001, I owned a truck. Owning a truck is a dangerous thing because you can cart away just about <laughs> anything. I bought, I went into Board of Education and there were hundreds of boxes marked audio tape. But when I actually looked into the boxes, they weren't audio tape, they were 16 millimeter film reels. Wow. So I bought, 200 and something boxes of 16 millimeter Memphis Board of Education films that I kept in my back room until the vinegar smell was overtaking the house and then I gave them to this guy who collects Americana Board of Education films wow. um, up east somewhere. But some of these films fell into the hands of, oh and by the way this was like Scooby-Doo, Winnie the Pooh, WPA films from the 40s. Crazy stuff, you know. What I was looking for was the drug warning films. Don't, right. don't use these drugs. Right. And I got one or two of those in there, the evils of cigarette smoking, stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, these kids got a hold of some of that stuff, and they actually scratched the footage and drew on the footage. Wow. And that was kind of abstract and crazy. Yeah, very. So McIntyre talks about his life, like I'm rambling here about mine. Um, I got McIntyre to talk about his upbringing, his life, his brothers, his family in, in Pittsburgh, all that as it came into focus for him moving here to Memphis, becoming a teacher, and becoming a sculptor, which mm -hmm. I'm not sure was first on his agenda, just like it wasn't first on my agenda. 
and all that will be laid over the visuals that you're going to see, which, as I said, is pretty hallucinogenic for, for what you're watching. Sounds fascinating. Absolutely. For the small fee of $10 or so to get in, yes. Nice. Yes. Uh, John McIntyre did a whole lot more than just that. Was he yeah. not really responsible for, like, the folk revival in Memphis in the 60s and everything? There's, or a large part of it? You could reach for your copy of Robert Gordon's It Came From Memphis and turn to the chapter called The Catfish That Ate Memphis. Robert, I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Like Robert Gordon's going to be listening. Yes. <laughs> he may well. He's on our boards. So. Oh, okay. Well, in fact, <laughs> I better get it right then. Uh, but anyway, you know, Robert did a chapter on McIntyre mm -hmm. and uh, covered all that, the bitter lemon, which is <laughs> when you... Thank you, Memphis, for knocking down one more goddamn thing that matters to people a thousand years from now when we'll want to see this stuff in person. But when you take the Union Viaduct uh, to go around, that's where the Bitter Lemon used to be. Oh, and okay. odd location, but that's where McIntyre had the first, eh, maybe, I don't know, first coffee shop, certainly the first coffee shop for hippies and beatniks and called the Bitter Lemon. And, and uh, he would get blues artists to play there. Ginsburg oh, wow. showed up there. A lot of really? crazy people showed up there, wow. according to McIntyre, yeah. And we try to cover that a little bit, but we can't, we couldn't find uh, literal photographs to reference when McIntyre talks about these things in every case. So we refer back to art school footage, mm -hmm. uh, Super 8 art school footage, which plays back into the hallucinogenic angle because uh, a lot of the visuals that you see in the doc versus a lot of things that McIntyre talks about, his blues interest, his musician uh, friends that he had, the bitter lemon, the problems he had with the police here at the time, mm -hmm. uh, the problems they had with Beatnik Manor, which I actually probably should describe what that is, was, used to be, <clears throat> it's gone too. We don't have visuals for those things except for crazy Super 8 footage. And that's what makes this journey, this experimental doc so... Uh, uh, hallucinatory because mm -hmm. you're listening to him say one thing and you're looking at something else and it's kind of cool though it's very cool uh, again it's <clears throat> beyond fascinating well it's desperate too in a way because well, what else okay. you, what else are you gonna do that's yeah. okay you desperate do your best art is good art you do your best work when you're desperate I completely agree or broke or op oppressed uh -huh. are all three uh, which gets me back to the gravel road in Mississippi but I did want to mention the, what Beatnik Manor is all about. So, so McIntyre lived at 2266 Madison, which is now, if you go there, it's pretty much the tail end wing of the ballet studios at right. Overton Square. Gotcha. So if you're heading east on Madison and you go through the light and the ballet uh, studio is on your left, mm -hmm. right before you pass the end of the ballet studio, that's where Beatnik Manor would have been. Okay. So all these young kids, uh, first time away from home, hi hippies, crazy people, people experimenting with life and all the and the culture at the time and the rock and roll scene and just everything. I mean, I know I'm firsthand coming up here was a culture shock to me, even though it was 1984 and, and the, those days were over with in large part. Uh, the punk days were still happening. Uh, so there was that, the last sense of musical rebellion that actually happened, you know, was still happening, and I caught the tail end of it. McIntyre was deep in the heart of it. He moved here, I, uh, I think I want to remember him saying in 62. And so by, by the mid-60s, late 60s, he was living in this place that all his friends called Beatnik Manor. Mm -hmm. Like the punk kids that were coming from Germantown were calling my pad Distemper House. 
So there's that relatability that I totally understand and I totally get. Here's a safe haven for people to do LSD. Right, be as weird as you yeah. want to be. Or listen to Joni Mitchell. Right. Uh, or, uh, you know, uh, God knows, I don't even want to think of the third thing. <laughs> <laughs> fill, fill a bathtub with Kool-Aid and make a movie about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, John did that stuff. John was affiliated with, um, well, Eggleston and lots of the uh, lots of those people the intelligentsia of of that uh, day of the you know jim dickinson all those people that were were making music producing music those names that you know we've all heard of sid selvage all those people mud boy all those folks lee baker mm -hmm. and making films with those people and then you had a guy named carl orr who was from tupelo who was a, maybe a little younger he came in a little later but he was still a part of it long-haired you know, the, the handsome hippie generation, I call it, where you had all these kids that avoided Vietnam uh, by going to college, but their fashion sense was very military, and you'd have army jackets worn by these kids with peace sergeant stripes on it and right. stuff. And I, I'd like to think of Carl Orr as that. I've never spoken to him. I have his phone number, and I plan on calling him. But sometimes McIntyre gives me phone numbers with more than the accepted amount of digits, so I don't know, <laughs> so I don't know who I'm calling. Nice. Like, you know... Has Carl passed away? Am I calling heaven? I mean, <laughs> anyway, the place was called Beatnik Manor. And in the, in the footage that you're seeing, you will see the front porch of Beatnik Manor. You'll see inside Beatnik Manor. You'll see various stages of John McIntyre's beard and hair growth uh, because he had the wherewithal to film himself working on art or, or some student filmed him. Mm -hmm. And that's so important because he's talking. He's the voice of the, of the narration. So Beatnik Manor was this place, but Beatnik Manor, as a metaphor, could be the art school. Beatnik Manor could be the antenna club. Beatnik Manor is where distemper house. Beatnik Manor is where you go to get your mind blown or your cozy assumptions of morality challenged. And so that's, the, well, the doc is called Beatnik Manor. So we will show, we'll have two screenings, like Bowie had two performances on the 25th, Saturday, February 25th, we'll show um, Beatnik Manor at 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. at Malco Studio on the Square. Nice. There will be some stuff that we show beforehand. Can I talk about that? If you wish, of course. Okay, so I'm, uh, I don't want this to be all about the past. It's about the future, and it's about preservation, and it's about electing politicians who care about these things, and it's about getting rid of the politicians that don't care about Memphis history, preservation. We've had to... Uh, suffer through enough of that and we currently are suffering through it so it's important to point to uses of the past that are not nostalgic that have a reason and a purpose and that even naysayers and the the those kind of people the negative people can go okay there's a reason to save that building other than the obvious reason which is anything in the american century anything in memphis born of memphis born of rock and roll born of the blues culture should be saved so that people can touch it and feel it and talk about it and here we are sitting in the shell uh, as, a, as a statement to that. Which and thank God the art... We came very, very close to losing, of course. Right, so. right, yeah. And the art school, thank God uh, the Metal Museum is coming in. Agree. Thank God for a lot of things in Overton Park. I'm glad that Brooks Museum has, is finding a new home downtown, but what becomes of that building? These are things we have to think about because when I moved here, Overton Park was where it was at. And it was cosmopolitan, and it was intimidating. It was so intimidating, me and my friends laughed at this at the artwork. We didn't understand it. What do we know? We're these redneck punk rockers from Mississippi. We've seen the Rockford Files. We've seen other places, you know. 
We've seen Policewoman. You know, we've seen television. Mm -hmm. We've seen Letterman. We've listened to Black Flag do TV party. But now we're suddenly in a metropolitan area and we don't know what to do. That's what Overton Park meant to me and my friends. It forced us into a larger framework of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, wouldn't it be cool if there was a David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane sculpture somewhere in Overton Park, theoretically, on the campus of the New Metal Museum? Um, and this is something I've, I've pitched um, to them a long time ago before COVID. But I'd like to pitch it again, and I'd like to make a proper video presentation. And uh, it's no secret that Bowie performed here on, on February 25th, 73. So I want that to be, that's why I set the date of Beatnik Manor on, the, on this coming, upcoming date. So that will be part of the presentation, and it's called Something Alien in the Park. So you'll watch that. You'll watch uh, the Dolph Smith short that I made called Thus Spake Dolph Smith, which is about the film class and about Bowie being at the art school that night. And those are very uh, specific pro Overton Park video presentations and entertainment I'm making and screening and showing with the help of Justin Thompson, who's helping me. My point is, is that I sculpted the Johnny Cash sculpture in Cooper Young. And then COVID hit, and then we all kind of lost our heads, and now we're back getting our act together. Mm -hmm. If we can get our act together and realize that Memphis is under-sculptured, it's under-statued, even that Robert Johnson sculpture that we see where he's, you know, in that classic pose of the two photographs that there are of him. Right. That photograph was taken on freaking Beale Street. It was taken on Beale Street. It wasn't taken somewhere in Mississippi, which is where he's known to be from. So there's all these aspects of blues artists that need to have sculptures. Furry Lewis, uh, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, mm -hmm. Alex Chilton, Sam Phillips, Carl Perkins, Marion Keisker, Memphis Minnie. The list, you know, on on. 20th century, American century rock and roll and blues personas that are all connected to Memphis that would make our tourist destination uh, city, you know, the thing it was back in the 70s when people would just come here to, to see rock and roll shows. Mm -hmm. Point being, if there was a sculpture of a bisexual alien in Overton Park, I can't think of any better place for it. Right. And if you can entertain the notion of a bisexual alien sculpture in Overton Park, then you can pretty much think that Furry Lewis is a good idea too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm coming from there. Now, beforehand, at the beginning of the night, we will have a presentation. You just come in, take your seat. Um, we'll have things going on in the lobby, too, pop-up shops for Bowie art that you can buy. Okay. But when you go in, while you're being seated, you will see Christopher uh, Reyes, who did Live from Memphis long ago. He did a three-minute short on his proposal for what he would like to do with the Mid-South Coliseum. It's just a matter of will. If, if the administration doesn't want things to happen, and I know for a fact they don't, mm -hmm. because they're like, well, no one came to us with any ideas. Well, yes, we did. The Coliseum Coalition did go to them with ideas right. and presentations, and they rejected them because it didn't fit their need at the time, which their need is to knock down the Coliseum, which there's plenty of space in the Coca-Cola uh, area, uh, down Southern for a soccer stadium. There's plenty of space over fronting Central. There's even plenty of space downtown. So it's not that we're anti-soccer. We're anti-assholes who want to knock down history. People that played there, Rufus Thomas, you know, David Bowie, James Brown, the Beatles. 
yeah. all that. So anyway, there's a bit of Mid-South Coliseum worship going on at the show as well. So you'll go in and watch Christopher's presentation on what he'd like to do uh, with the Mid-South Coliseum for what amounts to very little money in the scope of things when you realize that the city's asking for hundreds of millions of dollars for renovations to FedEx Forum, Liberty Bowl, and that sort of thing, which they should be. They should, everything should sure. be. Of course. Everything of course. should be renovated, you know? Of course. But uh, that's where we are with February 25th. So come out and see the show at Studio on the Square. Gotcha. This is the first time I've ever had the pleasure of sitting and talking to you, and I certainly hope it won't be the last. I am fascinated with the way that your mind works. When an idea enters your head, and, I, and obviously oodles of ideas enter your head, how do you choose what to work on? How do you proceed? I think about which idea can starve me and my family and not make my house payment. And then, <laughs> then that's the idea. That's the hallway, the labyrinth, the wormhole that I go down. So that by the end of the day, I'm like, huh, I guess I need a side hustle or something, some side gig. Uh -huh. So um, I haven't worked in public like uh, since October. I've just mm. been doing side hustles. I mean, a lot of us are, right? Right. Musicians, artists, right. the, the concept of being a full-time artist in Memphis or maybe anywhere is a daunting, it is. Yeah. daunting concept. So sometimes you have to do practical things, especially if you have children and a mortgage. Yeah, and like to eat three times a day. Right, and the best diet plan is to just not eat three times a day. <laughs> but I have lived here since 1984. I naively went to the art school. I was naive in many ways, I think I still am naive, thinking that I was going to the art school because they were cranking out Warhols or Lichtensteins or, you know, whoever. Mm -hmm. And Warhol was still alive when I graduated. So I thought, okay, this is what, I'm not really supposed to get into commercial art. I'm not supposed, I can't paint. Uh, I'm in the sculpture class and McIntyre looks like he's getting over some sort of uh, LSD hangover. I mean, he... He scared me in class, and I only had one semester of him mm -hmm. in, um, in school, and then he retired. After one semester, that's all I had of him for sculpture, and I was so immature and uh, stupid in the way I went about my projects then, and I had to work at FedEx that night to pay to go to school, so I would get there half awake anyway. A lot of kids would have to do that. Sure. MCA, in fact, had a special program with FedEx at the time where they would get you a job at FedEx. And I'd never had a real job before at 21. I'd somehow gotten by off my parents. And suddenly I'm going to work at 10.30 at night, coming in at 3.30, getting up at 8, going to Betty Callow's English class and failing it. And so that was my art school um, mm -hmm. thing because we had art and, uh, I'm sorry, we had English and history and things like that there too at the time. Sure. But to answer your question, no, I thought I was going to come out of the art school with a degree and just be an artist. But I wanted to be a comic book artist, and they didn't have a really a degree in that, and they would not have a, have a sequential arts degree until 15, 20 years later. And in fact, I had to go to the dean at the time and ask if I could draw graphic novel presentations to get my bachelor's degree to get out of school. And, he, mm -hmm. and they said yes, and that's what I did. Wow. So with everything swirling around up there, what's next? What can we expect to see in the next year, five, ten years? Um, sculptures. I'd like to pursue this idea of sculpture. It's, it's a livelihood, yes, but it's also a way to give something back to Memphis mm -hmm. for me being so inspired to not want to leave here, not want to participate in brain drain. 
I, I've always wanted to, to be here, always wanted to raise my kids here. Public schools that my kids went to school here were the greatest in the world. So glad that I'm here. And that's why it's so painful to see things knocked down. It's not nostalgia. It's, uh, it's an aspect of identity and uh, having a soul. And that's what Memphis does for you. If you don't want that, then don't live here. Go to Nashville. Right. Go somewhere else. <laughs> but in Nashville, we don't need you here. You know, I mean, you could come in if you want. And sure. Come to the show on the 25th and eat some barbecue, but then go back to Nashville. Mm -hmm. I'm just concerned about the infill of, of other uh, moneyed people, developers, real estate people, because my son is now, he's 18 and he's experiencing Memphis and he's getting out with his friends and he's seeing the historical things. And of course, he's heard it from me until he's blue in the face. Sure. So be much, it's much cooler to go to Sun Studio than to have somebody explain it to you. Of course. Yeah. Of course. That's, that is so much of the Memphis experience to go out and do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Mike, I want to say thank you again for the time. Thank you. Really Thanks and truly. For... We're, we're going to have to do this again sometime because there's so much more we could touch on. So. Well, thank you for having me and, and ride on with the shell and keep doing your thing, man. We appreciate you. <laughs>